Uh, good to be with you uh, this morning here at Harvest. Uh, our church in Oostburg is uh, deeply grateful uh, for you. We are an 85-year-old-plus-year-old uh, church, and uh, for many years our church has been involved in sending money and sending resources to help uh, church planting around the state of Wisconsin and even in uh, Spencer Mills, uh, Michigan, and yet we had never planted our own daughter church. And so last uh, fall, uh, God blessed us by sending your pastor, uh, Dale Van Dyke, to come and preach at Bethel and to speak with our elders and just share a little bit about your history. And um, for, for me, uh, what God is doing here and what the Spirit is doing here is kind of a paradigm for what I'm asking the Spirit to do also in our church. And uh, so we praise God that this past June we were able to send out uh, Nathan Strum, our assistant, our associate pastor, to go and plant a daughter church in South Sheboygan. And what we're seeing God do here, we're just praying, Lord, would you be pleased to do that also at Bethel, so that this ongoing bringing in men, training them up, sending them out with core groups to plant multiple churches, uh, would you be pleased to do that in Oostburg, Wisconsin as well? We only have 3,500 people in Oostburg, uh, but we're praying that uh, that's not going to limit what the Lord would want to do to build His kingdom. So thank you so much. Uh, we rejoice in what God is doing here at Harvest, and uh, we look at the, how the Spirit's at work here and just saying, Spirit, uh, would you be pleased to do that by us as well? Uh, this morning, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Psalm, chapter, Psalm 3. I see in the evening you'll also be in the Psalms. Uh, at Bethel in the evening, we're working through the first book of the Psalms, and there's a lot of reasons why I love the Psalms. I think one of the reasons why I've always loved the Psalms is it gives me a way to deal with my emotions. So whatever emotion you're feeling, uh, there's a Psalm for that emotion. It, it gives you a way to think about how do I express that emotion and how do I process that emotion that I'm feeling. If you look at Psalm 3 in the superscription, you, you see that uh, David writes this Psalm when he's being chased by his son Absalom. Uh, we'll get more into the backstory in that in a moment, but you notice in verses 1 and 2, David is expressing his fear and his anxiety before God. But then as you notice uh, very soon in verse 6, uh, David says, I, I'm not afraid. So something happened in this psalm. David's doing something with his fear and his anxiety before God that's allowing him to get a good night's sleep, even though the threat and the enemy has, hasn't gone away in this psalm. And that's helpful for us because whatever David saw by faith is what you and I also need to be seeing by faith. Because my guess is that even maybe if you don't have a child in your house uh, leading an insurrection against you, wanting to uh, take your life, uh, my guess is that if you're like me, uh, we all have some low-grade or high-level fear and anxiety that we are experiencing. Uh, Kate Julian, in a recent article in The Atlantic titled, The Anxious Child, describes how in America today there's so much fear and anxiety that our young people are experiencing. She refers back to a CDC study in 2021 which describes between the year 2009 and 2021 uh, the high level of young people who are experiencing, quote, persistent feelings of sadness, helplessness, hopelessness, and depression. And that number rose from 26% in 2009 to 44% in 2021. Now, again, there's a, there's a host of reasons why um, there may have this been this sharp increase uh, in levels of young people who are experiencing fear and anxiety. 
But one of the things that Kay Julian notes in that, in that article is that we have anxious children because we have anxious parents. That we have parents who are trying so hard to insulate their children from any distress, any discomfort, any maybe opposing viewpoint, and what it's producing in our children is not less anxious kids, but actually more anxious kids who feel like they don't have the resources to overcome obstacles and difficulties in their life. So again, whether you're a young person sitting here this morning feeling a bit anxious about your future, or you're a parent trying to raise children in this very unique culture moment that we're in as a nation, or you're someone like David, you're, you're later in life, and now you're experiencing trials that maybe you never experienced earlier in your life, the good news is that Psalm 3 is for all of us. Psalm 3 gives us a blueprint. It woos us in a way to not live in constant anxiety and fear over our circumstances, and it woos us to see the greatness of our God, who because of His faithfulness to His covenant promises to you, His people, uh, you don't need to live in fear and anxiety, even if the situation around you never changes. So this morning, let's ask God to bless us as we hear His Word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the way in which Your Word is inerrant and reliable, and it's sufficient. And today we would ask that through the power of Your Spirit, we would see Jesus Christ clearly presented in Psalm 3, so that even if our trials are around us, even if our situation is difficult, we will be a people who live at rest and with joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and I slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. If you're an outline kind of person, the first point is expressing our fears, which you notice in verses 1 and 2. Again, you notice the superscription gives us kind of a historical placement for David. It says, when David is fleeing from Absalom, his son. So, to understand the backstory to Psalm 3, we really have to go back to the book of 2 Samuel. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives David a promise. It's called the Davidic covenant. God says to David, David, from your line, there will be a king from your family who will reign forever and ever. I will always be faithful to you, David, and I'll be faithful to your line that there will always be a king forever. I will never abandon you. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 11, remember David is supposed to be out in battle with his army, but he chooses to stay home in Jerusalem. He gazes out. He sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. He brings her into his household. He lays with her. She becomes pregnant. Then he has to kill her husband, one of his favorite generals, Uriah, in order to cover up his sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David. That child dies. David marries Bathsheba, and she has another child named Solomon. Then you get to 2 Samuel chapter 13. In that chapter, David's daughter Tamar is raped by David's son Amnon. 
and David doesn't do anything about it. So Absalom decides to take justice into his own hands, and he murders Amnon, and David grieves over Amnon. And Absalom flees. He flees his family. He flees his father. In 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 15, Absalom now raises up conspiracy against David. He begins to woo the favor of the people. He undermines his father's kingship. He has a group declare Absalom now to be the new king. In 2 Samuel 15 and 16, David flees Jerusalem. As he's fleeing Jerusalem, some of the people support him, but many stay behind. David's own son Absalom then enters Jerusalem, and he goes and he sleeps with the concubines of David in full view of all of Jerusalem. So that's the trying situation. Again, your life may not be exactly like that, but my guess is that you've experienced something like that. You've experienced something where it seems like everything you've known, everything you've trusted in is beginning to unravel before you. Now notice verse 1. What's the very first thing that David does when he feels anxiety and fear? He says, O Lord, Adonai, Sovereign Lord. Again, this is a common response for David. Whenever he fears fear and anxiety, he goes to the Lord. If you have your Bibles, look at Psalm 56. In Psalm 56, David is living in Gath. He's been seized by the Philistines, and he says, the enemies trample on me all day long. But then what does David say in Psalm 56, 3? When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can flesh do against me? And again, just a real, a real simple observation this morning. Notice what David is not doing. David is not stuffing his feelings and giving this stoic response to everybody around him. I'm not afraid. I don't have anxiety. He's not denying it. David's also not naming his anxiety and his fear something else, which is something I like to do. He's not just saying, well, I'm a little bit tired. I'm a little bit worn out. I just need a good night's sleep. I'm a little bit uptight. He doesn't do that. David also doesn't do what we love to do in American society, where we love to just vent our feelings, where we just find people around us and we just vent our feelings. We live in awe of the feelings. We live despondency, despondently as if the feelings are in control and we're just a victim of our feelings. David doesn't do any of that. What does David do? He's honest, but he's honest about his feelings foremost in the presence of God. He goes to his God and he says, I am afraid. He prays his emotions to God. He does what Psalm 1, which introduces the Psalter, always invites us to do, which is to meditate on the Word of God, to take our experiences before God and meditate on our greatness, of the greatness of our God, and then let that evaluate our experiences. It's interesting in verses 1 and 2, there's really two different levels of fear that David's experiencing. In verse 1, David looks out and he sees actual enemies that are around him. He says, many are rising against me. In verse 6, he says there's thousands that are set against him. And we would maybe tend to kind of view that maybe metaphorically. Like maybe David's got a few enemies, but certainly not a thousand who are around him. But again, if you turn to 2 Samuel 15, 12, it says the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept on increasing. If you go to 2 Samuel 17.1, uh, David's advisor, who's now going to give advice to Absalom, 
Ahithophel says that there was at least 12,000 people who were willing to pursue David. So David has real physical enemies, 12,000 of them, that are circling around him wanting to destroy his life. But if you notice verse 2, we see even a deeper fear that David has to deal with. In verse 2, look at what David says. Many are saying of my what? Saul. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. In other words, David is tying together the experience of an external temporal threat with a deeper existential threat that he's experiencing in his soul. He does the same thing in Psalm 25, Psalm 25, 19. Consider how many are my foes, then verse 20, O guard my soul and deliver me, for I take refuge in you. Again, think about what David knows in his relationship with God. David knows that God has made him a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that he would never remove his favor or his presence from David, that David is the anointed king of Israel, and that God would be with his anointed king. But David also knew what had happened to King Saul. David knew that, that King Saul had been so disobedient to God that God took away the throne from him, that God did not show favor to Saul. David also knows his own history. He knows of his great sin with Bathsheba. He knows the murder of Uriah. He knows his own parenting struggles with his own children. He knows that even when there was murder within his own family, he didn't do anything about it. And then on top of that, David hears the taunts of the people. If you have your Bibles and you look at 2 Samuel 16, when David is fleeing Jerusalem, there's a man from the household of Saul named Shimei who begins to taunt David. And listen to the taunts that David hears as he's fleeing Jerusalem. Get out, you man of blood. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Solomon. See, your evil is on you. You are a man of blood. See, there's the real existential threat that's filling David's heart with fear. It's that fear that God somehow will not save you, that you've gotten to a point in your life where you've committed some sin that somehow is going to cut God's mercy and His grace off from you, that your very standing somehow before God has fundamentally changed. Why would you still expect God to uphold you as a king and rescue you when you have been so unfaithful before Him as a king and as a father and as a leader? Spurgeon writes, quote, Doubtless, David felt this infernal suggestion to be staggering to his faith. If all the trials which came from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses that arise from earth could be mixed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as contained in this verse. It's the most bitter of afflictions to be led to fear that there's no help for you in God. How willing are you this morning to name that, to name that when you have temporal threats in your life or temporal trials in your life, that there's not times where you get to that point internally, existentially, where you begin to wonder, is God really going to show up for me? Is God really going to deliver me today? Have I done something which somehow has made me not able to be a recipient of God's love and mercy again? 
when our family was doing church planting with the PCA in Thailand in the year 2000, um, it became really clear for us after about two years that we had a member on our team that was not real thrilled with my leadership style and the vision of our team. In most of the team meetings, there was this low-level passive aggressiveness that he would show to me, which finally one day when we were in our office and we were in the elevator going up to our office, he verbally threatened. He said to me, I will make sure that you will no longer be a team leader of this team anymore. I'm going to bring charges against you before MTW. I remember what it was like getting on the SkyTrain to go home that evening. I remember that that external threat of simply one man saying, I don't like your leadership style, it shook me existentially to the core. I began to wonder, maybe, God, you haven't called me to be a church planter here in Bangkok. Maybe I don't have the gifts that I thought you had given me to lead other people. Maybe God's not going to bless the church planting work in Bangkok. Maybe I'm not cut out to be doing this. I began to wonder, have I done something before God that has brought about this kind of a situation in my life? That simple temporal threat of one man saying, I don't like your leadership style, became a soul-shaking existential threat to me. It made me want to run. What about you? Have you ever experienced being betrayed? Maybe you were working on a project in the workplace and you put all the work into that work. You maybe shared your ideas with a peer and then that peer went on to actually finish the project and get all the credit for the project and then actually behind the scenes discredit you and your role in that project. Or maybe you're raising a child in your family and the child is rebellious and disobedient and you begin to hear the whispers around you of people saying, yeah, they're really not that good at parenting. They really don't know what they're doing. Perhaps you begin to wonder, is God still at work in my family? Is He still at work through my parenting style even when we make such a mess of things? In Psalm 42.10, David writes, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me when they say to me, where is your God? So this is what David's doing in Psalm 3. He's honestly going before God and he's acknowledging all of his fears. He's acknowledging his anxiety before God. He's acknowledging what all of that is doing to his soul before God. He's acknowledging how it's affecting his relationship with God. And again, that's what we do this morning in worship. As we gather here for worship this morning, as Pastor Dale mentioned, we lay all of our burdens on Jesus. God knows what's going on in your life and your heart right now. It's important for us in worship to come clean before God. Name all of those fears. Name all those anxious things right now that are burdening your heart. Come clean before God today in worship and put a name to those things. Say to God, God, this is what I'm experiencing today. These are my fears and my anxieties. But then you notice in the text how we overcome our fears. Look at verses 3 to 8. There's three things here that David sees by faith, which you and I will need to see if we're not going to be immobilized by our fear and anxiety. The first thing that David sees is in verse 3. David sees by faith his shield, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now, that's intriguing, right? He, he doesn't say, O Lord, you're a shield for me. He doesn't say, you're my shield. He says, you're a shield about me. And that word in the Hebrew literally means a shield that surrounds you. Now, again, I think, kids, you know, like, historically, maybe there's two different kinds of shields that you would see in battle. 
One of the shields is the kind you would see Captain America hold maybe in a Marvel movie. It's that round shield that you can kind of deflect uh, things when they're coming your way, right? Maybe an arrow comes this way, you deflect it, then you put it up over here, deflect another arrow, but it's certainly not a shield that's surrounding you. But then if you watch some of the movies, like, sorry to promote Gladiator, I'm not promoting it, but in Gladiator, or in some of those movies when you got to go near a city, you would be holding up a shield above you, and the shield would be almost circular. It would actually come around almost three sides of you. So when they're throwing the rocks and the lava and molta off the, the top of the wall onto you, it would roll around you, and you could lay those next to each other, so you could almost have a whole flanks of a battalion of Roman soldiers that would be untouched by anything coming off the wall. That actually is the kind of shield that David is envisioning here. He's envisioning a shield that's almost going completely around him. And again, there's at least two things that we learn from that. Number one, we learn that, number one, the Lord is taking David into battle. And when the Lord takes David into battle, David can't pull back from going into battle. David is still the Lord's anointed king. David can't flee from the kingship. He's the true king of Israel. So whether he's in Jerusalem or fleeing from Jerusalem, wherever the Lord calls him to go, David has to go. He can't run from the battle. But secondly, if the Lord is a shield around David, surrounding him, then whatever arrows David is experiencing in his life, it's not because God is impotent to keep the arrow out. God's actually allowing it for David's good. Psalm 119, verse 71, David writes, it was good that I was afflicted so that I would learn the commandments. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for we know these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Do you see what David sees by faith? When, when David says, God, you're a shield around me, what he's recognizing is that the difficulties he's experiencing are actually part of the shielding. They're actually part of the shielding. Let me just illustrate from using the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, remember Paul is pleading before God. Paul is saying, I got this thorn in my flesh, God. Would you please take that thorn out of my life? Because Satan is using that thorn to harass me. And again, Paul might be tempted to think, God, if you're a shield around me, if you were truly good, I wouldn't have this thorn. If you were truly powerful, you would take the thorn away. But listen to how Paul reflects on it based on what God tells him. God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When Paul reflects on that, he's able then to say in verse 7 that all of that thorn that he's experiencing, the pain of that, is to keep him from being what? Conceited. So Paul's meditating on the same truth that David saw by faith, that God used surround me with your power and your goodness and your love. And whatever I am dealing with, whatever you let into my life, whatever you brought into my life, it's actually not because of a failure of the shield, but you're actually shielding me from something far more dangerous. So when you and I go through the trials and the difficulties, God could actually be shielding us from having a heart that is full of pride and conceit. That when we're going through the trials and the difficulties and the, and the adversities in our life, and it's creating within us a people who are greater in humility and dependence on God, He's protecting us. He's shielding us from living with a self-reliant, prayerless spirit. 
And when God allows the difficulties to come into our life, it actually is part of the shielding because as we're broken and we're convinced of our own neediness, it's drawing us closer to the Lord rather than make us more self-sufficient. So David sees by faith his shield, God shielding him. Secondly, David sees by faith his true glory. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And again, that's intriguing. David could have said, Lord, you're glorious. Or David could have said, Lord, you're worthy of glory. Or Lord, may you be glorified in this situation. That's all correct, but that's not what he says. He says, Lord, my glory. Again, I'm so grateful for Tim Keller here, because Tim Keller here makes the connection between the issue of glory and the issue of fear. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which really means weighty. So this morning, when we come to worship and we declare before God, God, You are glorious, You are mighty, You are transcendent, You are perfect in all of Your attributes, what we're doing is saying, God, You're weighty. Your character and Your Word and Your deeds have weight over us. We're treating Him as if He has weight. He has influence over us. So when David says here in verse 3, but you, O Lord, he's making a change. He's worshiping God for being weighty and having authority in a way that nothing on earth could. Now go back to verses 1 and 2 and look at those verses from the perspective of glory. There's a host of things that David could have built his identity, his security, and his significance on. He could have built his identity and his security and significance on the fact that he was a good and popular king. He could have built it on the fact that he was a good father and a good husband. He could have built it on the fact that during his reign, the borders of Israel got larger than any other time period. He could have built his identity and his security on the fact that the populace loved him. They supported them. They loved to sing his name. He could have built his identity. He could have gloried in his power and his prestige and his status. Yet you notice in verses 1 and 2, what has caused David's heart to be filled with anxiety and fear? While all of those things I just mentioned can be taken away, they're all finite. If he chooses to glory in those things, to allow those things to have ultimate weight over him, it can all be taken away. Popular king, you're running from the city and the people are mocking you now. Good father, your own son wants you dead. Good moral record, you got blood on your hands. We know of your sexual infidelity. Power? you're running off into a wilderness. You're actively being stripped of all of your power. In your relationship with God, you're being taunted by the fact that right now there's no salvation for you before God. See, Psalm 3 has a lot to teach us about this dynamic of the heart, about what really causes our fears and our anxiety, because our fears and our anxiety that we face are not based only on temporal things, it's this existential thing we feel based on what we glory in. So when you and I take good, created, finite things and we put them in a place of having ultimate weight and influence over our heart, when we glory in them, when we say, you can have weight over my status, my significance, my security, my identity, then we realize that the thing that we're glorying in is finite, it can change, and it can be taken away, and it's vulnerable. In verse 3, as every earthly blessing is being stripped from David, David gets to the point and he says, Lord, I glory only in You. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. 
Kids, maybe you know what that's like in your house. Maybe when you've done something wrong, you've broken something, you've stolen something, you did something you weren't supposed to do, and your parents call you to come close. What do you do? When I was a kid, I looked down at my shoes. Never wanted to look at my mom and dad in their eyes when I knew I did something wrong. And then what did my mom or dad do? They'd put their hand under my chin. They would lift my chin up, and they would say, we're still proud of you. We still love you. David says, God, that's what you're doing for me. You're my glory. You lift my head. Even when everything else I could have gloried in is being taken away, I still glory in you. You are the one that gives me strength. One of the phrases that Tim Keller uses here is really helpful. He says, quote, in your times of fear and anxiety, to not only see the good things that you've expected to bear the weight of infinite glory, but what you need to do is you need to relocate your glory. You need to relocate your glory. So right now, think in your life, what's causing you to feel anxious or fearful? What are those things that cause you some days to almost be immobilized? You can't move forward by faith. Ask yourself, what good thing am I glorying in right now that might be at the root of my fear? What good creative thing am I expecting right now to bear the weight of glory that only God can bear? What am I expecting to be for me right now that only God can be for me? Consider the courage it would produce in you as a leader in the middle of trials if you don't glory in the approval of man and you don't glory in success. Imagine as a leader how that would cause you to be a person who would be filled with remarkable humility and courage when you glory only in the glory of God and not in anything temporal. Imagine how it would make you to be a person who could really receive correction when you no longer glory in the approval of praise of other people, but you really glory in what God ultimately says about you as His child. Imagine how it would make you less defensive how it would make you more of a courageous truth-teller. So by faith, in order to move from immobilizing fear and anxiety to getting a good night's sleep, even though the threat doesn't go away, we need to by faith see God as the shield around us. We need to by faith relocate our glory from things temporal to the God of glory. But finally, we need to see our substitute. Look at verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. What's the holy hill that David sees? In Psalm 2, 6, the holy hill is where the King of kings dwells. In Psalm 24, the holy hill is the one where the man with the pure heart, the clean hands, could go. It's the, where the temple was. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's where atonement happened. So, for example, if you go to Daniel 9:16, Daniel writes, O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, Your people have become a byword among the nations. So that's what David sees. When David prays to the holy hill, what is he seeing? He's praying to the place where there was atonement made for sinners. So David sees the greatness of her sins. He, when he hears Shemai make those taunts, David knows there's a kernel of truth in there, that yes, I have been a man whose hands are full of blood. He knows that he willingly has caused the death of one of the best generals in his army. David knows that because of the greatness of his sin, he deserves condemnation from God. He doesn't deserve salvation from God again and again and again. But David also sees, when he looks to the holy hill, God's rich mercy and grace and forgiveness. He knows that on that holy hill at the temple is where the altar 
of the sacrifice of the substitute occurs, which makes man right with God. What's interesting is David in Psalm 3 here uses the same language that Abraham uses in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, the Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, fear not, I am your shield, and your reward will be very great. Well, in Genesis 15, what fears would Abraham have? In Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to go to a nation, a land that, that he didn't know, and God would lead him and make him to be a land. He would give him a land, and he would make him to be a blessing to the nations. But the very next chapter, Abraham's in Egypt, and in Egypt, Abraham lies about Sarah. He calls Sarah his sister because he's afraid she's so good-looking that someone's going to steal him. So, Abram's aware of his own sin. And then in Genesis 15, Abraham hears this remarkable promise from God. God says, you know, I'm going to give you children, even though you and your wife are barren. Abraham says in Genesis 15, 8, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? How do I know that all your promises to me are going to come true? It's the same question that David's asking in Psalm 3. You made a promise to me in 2 Samuel 7 that the kingship is always going to go through my line, that you will never abandon me as your king. How do I know that those promises are going to come true? Back in Genesis 15, what does God do? He has a covenant-making ceremony. He takes pieces of a heifer and a ram and a pigeon. He slices them up. He puts them in two rows. And Abram's expecting that they would do what anybody would do in a covenant, that Abram and God would walk between the pieces. And as Abram and God are walking between the pieces, they would say, let it be done to us if either one of us doesn't uphold our end of the covenant. But what does God do in His mercy and His grace? He puts Abram to sleep. Then He gives him a vision where God, as a smoking fire pot, goes between the pieces. And God essentially says, let it be done to me. If either you're unfaithful or if I'm unfaithful, let it be done to me. I'm going to identify with these broken animals. I'll be willing to suffer the death if you're unfaithful to the covenant. And then you see Jesus Christ. He comes to earth. He's nailed to the cross. And you see how far God will go to make sure that all of His covenant promises to you, His child, will come true. So, how do you know for sure that God's not going to abandon you when you sin? How do you know that when you've been unfaithful again to the Lord for yet the hundredth time, that the Lord's not going to abandon your soul? Well, you look to the holy hill. You look to see Jesus Christ, your substitute payment. You look to see Jesus Christ, your substitute obedience. See, hundreds of years after David wrote Psalm 3, God made it clear through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that there would be a far greater David. There would be a far greater David, the King of Kings, who from 2 Samuel 7 would actually be taunted on the cross with these words, he trusts in God, let God rescue him if he delights in him, for he said, I'm the Son of God. Jesus is willing to bear all those taunts on the cross, even though he knew that he was the spotless, sinless Son of God. Jesus is treated on the cross as if God did not delight in him, as if he would receive what all of us deserves. Then God the Father raises the Son from the grave. Why? Because he delighted in the Son's obedience, and he delighted in the fact that he would have you, the joy of having a redeemed church before him. So, how do you know 
that you can trust that the salvation will come to you, that the salvation that you enjoy in Jesus Christ will never, ever be lost. Psalm 41, 11 affirms, by this you know that God delights in you. Why? Because your greatest enemy of sin and death will not triumph over you because of the work of Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit so convince you and I this morning of the sufficiency of our union with Christ that we might get a good night's sleep tonight, that we would have a heart of rest, and that in whatever trying situation you're in right now, that fear and anxiety would not immobilize you, would actually only drive you closer to your relationship with trusting in the greatness of your God to provide for you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, these psalms that you give us, both Psalm 3 this morning and tonight, Psalm 73, are timeless psalms where the psalmist invites us, people very much like the psalmist, to bring our burdens, our fears, our anxieties before the Lord. And Father, we're so grateful that today, even if the trials in our life haven't changed, that even today we can be a people of rest, a people of joy, a people rejoicing in our dependence on You. And so, Father, we would pray that even today, if there's some sitting here who are dealing with anxiety and fear that's almost immobilizing, that even today in worship, they would be moved to today having rest and joy and rejoicing in the greatness of what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to the sermon this morning by singing, A Wonderful Savior is Jesus My Lord.
through God's parting benediction, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that through the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. Amen.